Um, moving on from that, if you are just joining us, as you heard, we are in week nine of a sermon series we're calling We Need a King, which has been exploring the life of the Old Testament King David. And his story is told in the, book, the books of First and Second Samuel. Now, about six weeks ago, I preached a sermon on what I think is the most famous story in First Samuel, David and Goliath. Uh, today, we've come to what I think is the most famous story in Second Samuel, and that is the story of David and Bathsheba. So, fair warning, if you, if you have little kids here today, you might want to make use of the kids' programming, um, because we're going to be talking about some sensitive topics in the midst of this message. Uh, this story is well known, right? In many ways, it doesn't need an introduction. Many of you already have ideas about the passage, and while I could consider a number of themes, at the core of the passage today is the destructive power of sin. So today, what I want to show you is how to be free from sin's power. And we can't do that unless we take a look inside our hearts and ask this crucial question, what sin am I capable of? What sin am I capable of? Now, I want to suggest that we are always capable of more than we think. And my suspicion is that all of us in this room, we have either witnessed somebody commit a sin they never thought in their wildest dreams they would commit, or maybe that was you. And when we experience somebody we love or respect fall and fail, what is the refrain that we often hear? I never thought they were capable of that. I never thought. For example, many people in this room may have greatly benefited from the, the apologetics ministry of Ravi Zacharias. And you know, tragically, a few years ago, he passed away, but after he died, it came out that he was engaged in, in habitually engaging in sexual misconduct. And what did people say? They said, I never thought he was capable of that. It's painful. Now, now you might say, well, that's a high-profile leader. I'm not under the same pressure. Well, let me offer a more down-to-earth example. Several years ago, I came across a news story from Denver, Colorado, where I used to live, and it was just a normal suburban family, and there, it was the story of the Watts family. Um, now, this has been a national news. There's been some documentaries about this. So you may have heard of them. But the story, at the time, just shattered my soul, partly because of my season of life, but also because it highlights the destructive power of sin. Chris Watts, who you see in this picture, took the lives of his pregnant wife and his two little girls. And he's now in jail for life without parole. And I remember reading the brutal details of the story, and my stomach just welled up in knots. And I said, how could somebody do this to their family? Did nobody see this coming? And frighteningly, if you read the story, it's what multiple people said was that these, these were nice people, right? On social media, they had this beautiful family, beautiful pictures, smiles. They were so happy. And now it's all gone. The destructive power of sin left its mark. And what was the refrain? I never thought they were capable of that. See, when we read stories like this, it should make us sober-minded. It should make us ask the question, what sin are we capable of? Now, I'm not suggesting anybody in this room will do exactly what Robbie Zacharias or Chris Watts did, but I do want us to understand that sin brings destructive power. That's, these aren't your stories, but maybe you have done something or had something done to you that you never thought possible. We have to be sober-minded because something at some point can just set us over the edge if you're not careful, right? As the Watts story was investigated, it turns out that not everything was as good as it appeared. 
on social media, right? There was affairs happening. Uh, There was uh, finances that were strained. There was a shadow that was lurking within, a shadow that needed to be exposed and fought. As God once told Cain in the book of Genesis, sin is always crouching at your door. What are you capable of? Now, I'm teasing this out because in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, King David does something that we don't think he's capable of up to this point in the story. David and Bathsheba, in many ways, is a story that needs no introduction. It's a story about sex and power and cover-up. But up until this point in the story, King David has been mostly a good king. He has sought to honor God. He wanted to build the temple, but then he lets his guard down. Sin's destructive power gets into his heart. He commits a sin maybe he didn't even think he was capable of. And more than that, if you read the story, you'll find out that David actually breaks four of the ten ten commandments. That's like almost half of them in this scene here. And so I'm asking myself this week, how did he get here? That's what I want to explore in the rest of our time today. Because if David, the man after God's own heart, could do this, why should we think we are any better? Understanding what we are capable of requires that we come to grips with three realities. First, the power of sin. Second, the consequences of cover-up. And then finally, if you want to be free, you must know the necessity of repentance. The power of sin, the consequences of cover-up, the necessity of repentance. So let's pray before we look at this uh, today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word for, for how it instructs us, for how it reveals what's in our hearts, Lord. And so we confess today, Lord, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Lord, we need you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your empowering presence. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and speak to my friends who are here now, who are listening later, Lord, and may you change our lives. May you transform our lives. May you draw us closer to you. May you bring restoration where it needs to happen, Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the story of David and Bathsheba begins this way in 2 Samuel 11. We read this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his main general, and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites, a neighboring enemy, and besieged Rabbah, their capital. But then we read this. But David remained at Jerusalem. He didn't go out to battle. Now, let's pause here and just talk a little bit of background of this story. Uh, First, this battle is a continuation of David's conquest against the Ammonites, their neighboring enemy, uh, which began in chapter 10. So we didn't cover chapter 10, but that's what that was about. Second, military campaigns occurred in the spring because it was the end of the rainy season, and so the roads were more favorable for travel. And then thirdly, as I just mentioned, David doesn't go out to battle. Now, many preachers will say that David was neglecting his duty for leading uh, his people into battle, but um, really that act, this actually wasn't that uncommon in uh, that day and age. It wasn't uncommon for kings to remain behind for their protection, except if it was a major, major, major battle. But either way, the point is this. David is in Jerusalem. He's not with his men fighting. He's alone, and sin is crouching at his door. And so we read this in verse 2. It says, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. 
Now, what's going on here? Okay, so David's sitting in his palace, beautiful palace, right? We read back in chapter 7, it's got cedar panels. It's so beautiful that he wanted to build a house like this for the Ark of the Covenant. And he's relaxing. It's, there's a nice cool breeze blowing through the window. And he decides he's going to stretch his legs. And so he wanders out on the roof, the highest place of the palace. And he's going along, walking along, and then he looks down. And what does he see? He sees a naked woman. And the author tells us the woman was very beautiful, which means it's meant to indicate that she caught David's eye, and he lingered there for a while. Now, you probably remember this part of the story, but before we move on, I want to point out that the author right here in this verse doesn't give us a lot of details, which in my mind raised a host of questions this week. For example, has David done this before? If he has, maybe this is a habitual thing he's been doing. Maybe he's been planning his next action. Does he know this woman? Now, we learn later that she's the wife of one of his closest warriors. Maybe she caught his eye at a party. They were both there, and he's been walking on the roof regularly, hoping that she's going she's gonna, to she's gonna be on the roof one day. Or conversely, if she's bathing on the rooftop uh, this close to the palace, does she know that David's walking? And is she intentionally trying to get his attention? Now, Now, how you answer those questions maybe changes the way you read the story. The author leaves the questions unanswered. But if you read the entire narrative, it's very clear that David is in the bullseye. As the king, as the man after God's own heart, he should know better and he should avoid sinning. Because in this moment, David has a choice, and so do we. Because a scene like this hits home for many people, especially in our modern era. Uh, Very few of us, if any, live in a palace. Maybe you do. Uh, That's great. Uh, Maybe you're taking walks on your roof. I don't know, and looking at the rooftops of your neighbors, which is kind of weird, but, you know, more power to you. Um, But I would say that the internet gives us the walk of the roof through things like social media. Because have you ever been scrolling through Facebook or Instagram and somebody's picture caught your eye, maybe somebody you knew, and you lingered? That's a lingering pause, right? And the longer we linger the easier it is for intrusive thoughts to come into our mind. In this moment, like David, we have a choice to linger or move on. What would you choose? Maybe in your mind you start to fantasize about what it would be like to be with that person. That's what David's doing here. He's vulnerable. His rooftop is the ancient version of Instagram. These opening two verses, I think, the author wants us to know the power of sin and how quickly it can come into our lives, and he's showing us a really important principle. It's this. Sin sinks its teeth into us when we are isolated or elevated. Sin sinks its teeth into us when we are isolated or elevated, or both. That's the tactic of the enemy, friends. If Satan wants you to fall prey to the power of sin, what is he going to do? He's going to get you alone. He's, he's going to get you where nobody knows where you're doing and nobody can speak truth to you. Or he's going to make you think you are so powerful. You are so above the law. He's going to make you think you are too important to fail 
He's going to make you think you deserve that little slice of sin. That's what he does. And that's where David was. He was isolated from his mighty men. He was elevated due to his success, and he has a choice. What does he do? Verse 3. says, And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, I want you to circle in your Bibles or highlight or whatever you do that word sent. Okay, that word is used over and over and over and over again in chapters 11 and 12. Circle it every time you see it, because more often than not, it is going to convey that David is using his royal authority. David is exercising his power. So he sees this naked woman, and he asks, who is she? The modern version would essentially be, hey, is she available? Can I have her number? And what does he learn? He learns that she's the daughter of Eliam. So she's the member of a wealthy family in Jerusalem. But more than that, she's married to Uriah, who was probably a friend of David. So if I could say it plainly, David right here is staring at the naked body of one of his friend's wives. Now, when he gets this information, how should he respond? Like, wouldn't you expect the man after God's own heart to repent right there and turn away? David has a choice. Look at verse 4. It says, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Now, just to note, he does this after he finds out that she's married. And so other than the obvious, what just happens? Now, I want to be really sensitive here because this verse in particular may have strong, deep, emotional, it may raise those things within some folks. Again, we're not given all the details, but I want to point out some important ones. Notice again that word sent, right? David is using his royal authority. He is summoning her. The king wants to see you. And what is she thinking? Right? Second, notice that word took, right? That's the Hebrew word lacha, and it uncovers a disturbing trend in David's life. Every time that word is used in First and Second Samuel, David has been adding women to his harem. It's the word that's used to describe David's greed, He's greedy in taking, right? It's it's a negative word here. And then all we read is that they slept together and she went home. No details except what's in the parentheses, that she purified herself, which is an important detail because the author wants us to know that if she becomes pregnant, there would be no question that the child was David's. So we read this in verse 5. It says, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now notice here that Bathsheba is sending, she's the one sending to David now, letting him know that this action has not been without consequence. The power of sin has caught David when he was isolated and elevated. Now, what is he going to do? And we'll pick up on that in the next movement, but before we do, we should discuss the two obvious themes in this section and their application. Sex and power, power and sex. Okay, there's been a lot of cultural talk about these issues and how they interlace with one another in recent years. Now, I would say, first and foremost, uh, this narrative is about David's misuse of his power as the king. That, That misuse of power is then manifested first in a sexual act that harms others. And for both topics, I want to offer just some application points. First, we have to we have to work hard to resist cultural norms. And our culture has a lot to say about sex and power, does it not? 
I mean, look at the cultural artifacts, movies and music and shows, and what are you going to see? You're going to see some messages. Right, for example, ba- back in the late 1990s, and I, I use this example because it, I think it's influenced a lot of things today, the most popular show was Friends. Okay? The HBO, they just did a whole reunion episode with the whole cast and crew and, and the main stars, and there was multiple interviews of people testifying how meaningful this show was in their lives. But blogger Jonathan Van Meren highlights the show's darker legacy. He writes this. He says, In reality, Friends was a decade-long Hollywood experiment in testing the moral limits of Americans and desensitizing viewers to harmful sexual behavior. The show made a punchline out of casual sex and hookups and portrayed them as consequence-free. No STDs, no trips to the abortion clinic, no staring at their phones waiting for the one-night stand to call. What was it? Just a good laugh over the last condom in the apartment and a porn marathon. Now, do you think that had an influence on a generation of people and how they viewed sex? It was the forerunner to so many of the modern shows where sex and alternative sexual lifestyles are just ubiquitous, right? Can you find a show today that doesn't incorporate these themes? Even Disney's pushing the envelope, right? Whatever you're watching, look for what they are trying to normalize. Now, what's interesting about David is that he's also giving into cultural norms of the day. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 17, you're going to see that God gives laws concerning Israel's kings. God gave those laws specifically to make the king of Israel stand out as different in his day. For example, Deuteronomy 17, 17 says this, of the king, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And yet, if you read through these narratives, what do you see Saul doing? What do you see David doing? We even learn that David acquired the harem of Saul in chapter 12. Why? Because that's what kings did. That's what the kings of all the other nations did. Right? The kings of other countries would use their power to take for themselves. But Israel's king was supposed to be different. Israel's king was supposed to do what? Protect his people. But throughout this narrative, David is not protecting, he is harming his people. He's not resisting these cultural norms. Second, we should seek to serve and not to take. Now, let me be clear. The Christian sexual ethic is this. Sex is reserved as a gift to be enjoyed in a one-man, one-woman marriage. Outside of that, the Bible forbids it. However, the cultural message of today is what? Is that in order to be fulfilled... We must be allowed to have sex with whomever we want, whenever we want. And so David takes what he wants, right? He's selfish. Some of the main reasons that people use their power to acquire sex in inappropriate ways are just at the core of of what we perceive our needs to be. Intimacy, right? We're wired for intimacy, but we don't want to be truly known by anybody. So casual sex is a good, that's, that's a good option, we think. Love, Right? Inappropriate sexuality can offer a false feeling of love because we want to feel cared for at our deepest level. So I'm going to pursue this over here. Fulfillment. Sexuality has a way of making people feel fulfilled for a moment, but outside the confines of a loving, committed marriage, it's going to leave us empty. Now, the truth is sexuality can be misused even within marriage. Because the heart posture should be to serve and love the other person, never to selfishly take 
Likewise, whatever power we have in our lives should be used to serve and love others and bring about human flourishing. Now, in 2 Samuel 11, David does none of this. He gave into cultural norms, he took what he wanted, and the power of sin ravaged his soul, it hurt others, and it led him down a dark path. He has a choice. And so now we're going to see the consequences of cover-up. So verse 5 ends with this ominous note about Bathsheba sending a a message saying, I'm pregnant. And when David gets this message, what what must be going through his mind? Because if anyone found out, the punishment for adultery in that day was death. Would they try to kill the king? Would there be a, would there be a rebellion fomented against him? The stakes are, are high right here. And so if we're honest, David did what, what many of us might have done. He chose cover-up over confession. And that application moves well beyond the sexual theme of the first movement. Don't think it's just about that. What are you covering up? Now, maybe it's an addiction of some kind. Maybe it's, maybe it's a failure at work or school. Maybe you're lying about something in your life. There's a hard truth that needs to be shared, and the reason we, we do not do that is we think it's easier to hide. But the longer you cover it up, the more trust will be lost, the more collateral damage there will be. Look, look at the path David chooses. Look at verse 6. The narrative continues. It says, so David sent word to Joab, his general. He says, send me Uriah the Hittite. And so Joab sends Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Now notice again that word sent, okay? David's using his royal authority, his power, to summon Bathsheba's husband. And the front lines of this war were not close. I mean, Uriah had to come back to Jerusalem, which was a multiple-day journey, multiple days running back because he thought the king had important business for him. And so he's running back, he's running back, he flings open the doors of the throne room, he comes before David, and what does David ask? David just says, so, how's it going? How's it going? Let me just explain something to you. Uriah is one of David's best soldiers, Other people could have just given report about how the war was going. So to have him run all the way back to Jerusalem just to give report on how it's going would have been shocking to him. He's like, what's up, David? Really? But then David starts working his plan of cover-up. Look at at verse 8. It says, then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Wink, wink. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now, the phrase, wash your feet, which I alluded to, is a euphemism. David is implying that he should go home and sleep with his wife. He even sends him with a nice gift to put on his bed or whatever he was going to do with it. But the real reason that David summoned him, it's, it's, it, we see it here, right? David thinks if Uriah sleeps with Bathsheba now, nobody's going to know what David did. Because remember, back then, there's no 3D ultrasounds, right? There's no 23andMe DNA tests. It's all about timing. But notice that Uriah doesn't go. He sleeps on the king's porch, and you ask yourself, why does he do that? He does that because there's an oath that all the soldiers take in that day. When, when, when they're at war, nobody's going home to be with their wives, right? They're out on the field of battle. And so Uriah right here is trying to act honorably, He serves as a foil for David's actions. 
Now, since the first, this option doesn't work, David has to think on his feet now. He's like, what am I going to do? He didn't go home. So he takes another tactic. Look at verse 12. It says, then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. He's the one who's sending. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, and he did not go down to his house. So, okay, so the next tactic is, it, he didn't listen to me, so let's introduce some alcohol. Let's intoxicate him. David is escalating his active involvement in this cover-up. First, he offers an option. Next, he gives him some wine, and it still doesn't work. And at this point in the narrative, we come back to the question we asked at the beginning, what sin am I capable of? What sin am I capable of? Again, David has been a man who, up to this point, has acted generally honorably, But now his back is against the wall, and because of the power of sin and his reputation is on the line, he now does something else we would never expect. Look at verse 14. It says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, his general, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote to Joab, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Now, again, remember, it's likely that David is friends with Uriah. They fought in battle together. He's one of his mighty men. And now, because of his cover-up, he's willing to order his murder. Not only that, what does David do? He sends, there it is again, he sends that letter. He sends it with Uriah, and it's the letter that ordered his execution. And so the general gets it, he opens it up. Uriah is probably standing right there. And now we're about to see the immense consequences of David's cover-up. And what are they? Well, now Joab is involved. Joab's an accomplice. He got the letter, and he chose to carry out the order. Blood is on his hands. I mean, imagine what Joab must be thinking as he reads this letter from Uriah. Now, second, Joab doesn't just send Uriah to the front line. He's got to send a bunch of men. It's not just Uriah that dies in this plan. There's multiple people that die. I mean, picture this dramatic scene, right? David's friend, Uriah, is is valiantly, he's got his sword drawn, he's at the front line, he's fighting for his king and his country, he's doing everything he can to honor his people, and Uriah has no idea that David slept with his wife and ordered his execution. Have you ever been to Uriah? Have you ever experienced the consequences of a cover-up? Now, it may not look like this, but there's a shadow that lurks in every human heart. Because like David, we are capable of more than we think. And then at some point in our lives, we have our own Uriah, or we play the part of Uriah, and there are consequences. And I don't want to be naive. Like somebody sitting here today or somebody listening to this, you, you may be living out this David and Bathsheba and Uriah narrative. It may be very real for you. The details are different, but the principle is the same. Maybe you are walking through it right now. You've experienced the power of sin, but then the cover-up, oh, it got even worse because you, you saw how far your friend, your family member, your, your spouse was willing to go to hide what they're capable of. It is painful. It's painful. There's Uriah 
running into battle, screaming at the top of his lungs, willing to give his life for David and Israel. And David's sitting back in his palace on his throne, wondering if his plan worked so he wouldn't be found out. Author A.W. Pink highlights David's situation. He says this. He says, when the conflict is over and the sword is laid down, we are very apt to relax and become careless about spiritual concerns. And then it is, while off our guard, that Satan so often succeeds in gaining an advantage over us. David put down his sword He was off his guard, and then we find out what he's capable of. And it cost his friend his life. And so once news of Uriah's death reaches Joab, he decides to send a messenger back to David, and he anticipates that David's going to be angry because they lost the battle. And so Joab says, hey, when he gets angry, make sure you tell him about Uriah. And so the messenger goes back, he reports to David, and David does indeed get angry, and then the messenger tells him this, verse 24. He says, then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, my king, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. And that news has got to stop David in his tracks, because the consequences of his cover-up, they're now very real. People have died because of his sin. In fact, I picture him pausing for a moment, just taking in all that he's done. Uriah, his friend, is dead, and I I picture him just sitting there with both sorrow and relief. And so he gathers himself, and he responds to the messenger this way. He says, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, And encourage him. So David says essentially, you got to keep the battle going, Joab, right? But notice that phrase, the sword devours one and now another, which will prove very ironic and prophetic in David's life. Because as we're going to see next week, the sword is going to come to David's house. The consequences of his cover up are going to impact the rest of his life. For now, David thinks it's over. He thinks his plan is successful, and so he mourns Uriah for that customary period of a couple, seven days, and then he marries Bathsheba. He thinks, nobody now, nobody's going to know what I did, or so he thinks. And then in chapter 11, verse 27, we read this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And I want, you, I want to invite you to sit with that verse for just a moment because up until this point, you may have noticed, who has been seemingly absent from this narrative? God. In fact, some of you may have been reading this and you're saying, is God okay with this? Right? Why is this story in the Bible? I mean, I haven't read this in a while. What is going on here? Chapter 11, verse 27 serves as a turning point in David's life. His house is now about to fall apart. He had a choice He sinned, he covered it up, and now there's consequences. So before we finish the story, I just want to ask you today, what may you be covering up? Because the scriptures often use this imagery of darkness and light. And it says the people who walk in darkness, in the shadows, they, they are in danger, and they're often influenced by the enemy. It's only when we come into the light that we're freed, but that walk into the light, it is painful. As I mentioned at the beginning, we are capable of more than we think. The human heart is bent towards sin and self-preservation. Because why do we cover up our sin? Why why do we resist coming to the cross, coming to the table, and confessing what's going on in our lives? 
Most often it's because we're afraid of the shame it's going to bring to our reputation. We want to look better than we actually are. And so we post those happy pictures on social media like the family I mentioned at the beginning. But truthfully, things may not be going so well, right? Shame causes us to cover up. But once we cover up long enough, then we start to justify our actions, right? We say things like, you know what? What I did, it wasn't that bad. Or, you know, I, you know what? I deserved it. Like, things have been pretty hard lately. Or it was really that person's fault. It wasn't me. They made me do it. And that might lead to actions then that hurt other people. David did all of these things. He did all of it. We cover up when we're isolated and when we're elevated because nobody is truthfully speaking into our lives. What is James, New Testament writer James, what does he warn us about? He says, but each person is tempted, right? That's how it begins. Then he's lured and he's enticed by his what? By his desire, Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, right? And then sin gets its power. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth what? It brings forth death. That's the picture of the power of sin through temptation. That's what what happened to David. And then the devastating consequences of covering up, they're all too real. Now, at this point, some of you might be saying, gee, Pastor Bob, I haven't read this story in a while. It is really depressing and disturbing. Man, is there any hope here? How do we combat the power of sin? Well, I'm glad you asked because our final point shows us how to be free. And it's through the necessity of repentance. And so I just want to look at chapter 12 briefly here. Because over and over again in this narrative, I've been pointing out the use of that word sent. Right, Various members of this conspiracy have been covering up by sending messages. Right, David sends to Bathsheba. Bathsheba sends to David. Joab sends the message to David. The full scope of human sin is on display in chapter 12, but then God steps in in, in, in chapter 11, but then God steps in in chapter 12. And it says the Lord sent Nathan to David. So now it's God's turn to do the sending. Enough is enough, right? God is now sending his prophet to confront the king in his dastardly act. And God, through Nathan, will do what nobody else will do. Nathan chooses to be obedient and speak prophetically. And so here's what he says to David. You know, here's the story. He tells a parable. So he comes to the king as the judge. And he says, oh, my great king, King David, let me tell you a story. There was a certain city, and there was a rich man, right? And there was also a poor man. And the rich man over here, he had a lot of livestock. He had, he had goats and sheep, and he had, he had a ton of stuff. And the poor man over here, he had just one little ewe lamb, one little lamb. And he loved that lamb so much that he cared for it, that he protected it, that he took care of it its entire life. He loved that lamb. And then one day, a, a traveler comes to the city, and he comes to the house of the rich man, And he decides to stay there. And the rich man is thinking, you know what? I got this traveler. I got to feed him. But I don't want to use, even though I have a ton of sheep and goats and everything, I don't want to kill any of them. What does he do? He goes to the poor man and he takes his little lamb and slaughters it and prepares it and feeds it to the traveler. The rich man takes and the poor man is left with what? Nothing. Now, David hears the story, and we read he's incensed. What does he say? It says, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. 
And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Now you might be saying, isn't David overreacting? I mean, it's just, come on, it's just a lamb, right? Well, in that culture, if somebody steals somebody else's lamb, especially if that person is poor, uh, that was cruel. That violated the Torah, the Ten Commandments. Now also understand in this day and age, there's no judges, right? There was no Supreme Court to sort these issues out. Nathan is bringing this issue to the king because David was both king and judge. And what is David's sentence? He says, this man deserves to die. And I'm reading this and I'm saying, finally, somebody is angry in this story. Like all this stuff has been happening and nobody's getting upset. David's finally angry at somebody. And then Nathan reveals the true nature of his parable. He says to David, you are that man. Very famous. You are that man, David. You did this. And then he goes on. He tells more. He says, David, listen, God gave you everything you could have imagined. Like this rich guy, you had everything. And God would have even given you more, David. And yet you took from somebody who had less than you. You gave into the power of sin. You covered it up. You married Bathsheba. You committed murder. And you think it's all done? No. The consequences will continue. So he, he says this in verse 10. He says, Now therefore, David, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son. For you did it secretly, David, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So there's consequences for David's sin, and they're severe. Like family problems are coming his way. In chapter 12, it begins, the first child who, David, who Bathsheba bore to David, that child dies. The consequences of his sin and his cover-up are far-reaching to generations. It's devastating. And now David has another choice because he's in the same place that Saul was a couple weeks ago. And if you remember, Saul, when he was in his lowest place, what does he do? He goes to see a witch. The question is, will David repent? Will he admit what he did? And look what he does in verse 13. It says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Amen. So David doesn't fight. He confesses. He turns back to God and God sees his heart. And because of his confession and his repentance, and if you want a fuller picture of that, you got to read and meditate on Psalm 51. God has mercy on David. He forgives him, but not without consequence. And this gets to the heart of the gospel message because we asked again at the beginning of this message, what sin are we capable of? And if you read the Bible, you see that the giants of faith are committing these atrocious sins. You got, you got Abraham, the father of faith. He's a liar and he's, he's, a, he's a deceiver. And then you have Jacob. You see stories about him where he's manipulating and lying. And, and Peter, he's denying Jesus. And then David here, he's, a, he's an adulterer and a murderer. These are giants of the scriptures. And, and you've you got to read this and say, how, how are we supposed to do any better? Because we live in 21st century America? The line of good and evil, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, runs right through every human heart. And what the gospel message tells us is this. All of us are capable of great sin. 
And because of our great capacity for sin, God had to provide a way to deal with the consequences. Somebody died for our sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's mercy and forgiveness is available to us, but we must repent. Turn from your sins. Trust in the Lord. You know, I had a, I had a seminary professor, Dr. Soong Wook Chung from South Korea. I took theology classes with him, and every day he'd come into my theology class, and he would say with tears to these, these future preachers, he would say, you must preach repentance. You must preach repentance. And a text like this begs that preaching today, because some of us today, we need to hear this message. Some of us need to hear the words, you are the man, you are the woman. Some of us need to be confronted in our sin and realize that we are capable of more than we think. Stop before the consequences grow more severe. We need to hear about repentance because only then can you be freed from sin's power. And God's grace can cover over a multitude of sin. But it's better not to sin. So I would challenge you in your life to do two things. Become a Nathan to somebody. Right? Don't be afraid to confront out of love because you may be saving someone from the pain of the consequences of their actions. The writer of Hebrews tells us this, great verse, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. He tells us, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What a great verse. Be a Nathan to somebody, but also, don't just be a Nathan, get a Nathan. Make sure there are people who can speak into your life on a daily basis, who point out our faults, people who can, out of love, people who, hear, who, who we can hear hard things from, who expose our sin and bring us before the Lord. We all need those people in our lives who care enough to confront and lead us to the forgiving power of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so as the worship team comes up, they're going to they're lead us in one response song. I just want to point out to you the ray of hope at the end of 2 Samuel 12. Because in the midst of all the pain and all the heartbreak and all the death, God shows us that he will keep his promise to us. A savior will come from the line of David. God can even take our brokenness and he can turn it into beauty. And so after the death of the first child of of, uh, David and Bathsheba, they have a second child. And we read this in verse 24 of chapter 12. It says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So Jedidiah, Solomon's other name, means the one the Lord loves. And it's from that line that King Jesus will come to earth. The king who offers forgiveness and sins, not without consequence, but he does work in our brokenness. Why? Because he loves us like a good heavenly father and he paid the penalty for our sins so we could experience freedom. So before we come to the table today, we're gonna sing a song about forgiveness. And as we do, I want to invite you to consider that opening question one last time. What sin am I capable of? Maybe like David, there's some confession you need to do with the Lord today. But as you meditate, I also want you to think about what God is capable of. He's capable of forgiveness. He's capable of restoration if we repent and we trust in him. So take just a few moments to pray and to meditate 
as the team leads us in this wonderful response song, and then we'll come to the table together.